First of all, thank you very much for the uh, for the invitation. And regarding Eugene and the making of the Arab world, actually Eugene saved me, I have to say, because at the making of the modern Arab world, I ended the first version of it on a relatively optimistic note, which was more or less things are looking up, the Arab Spring, more or less, and then Eugene said, Tarek, you might want to reconsider some of your, of your endings. And he saved me because people said it was a very, very insightful ending, Tarek, really excellent. I'm like, thank you, Eugene. Um, no, really, it's a great pleasure to, to be here and a privilege for me to be here. So really, thank you very much for the invitation. I was just uh, saying upstairs that the very first time I heard about St. Anthony's College was with the very first book ever I read on the Middle East many, many, many years ago. So it was always Oxford and St. Anthony's College. So it's a real personal pleasure and privilege to be here. Um, now, I understood that I'll probably be speaking for the next half hour or so. I hope I remember what I wanted to do. So I'll probably be looking at my notes uh, a, a lot. Um, but let me start by the, the title, which is why the, Arab, the Egyptian uprising of 2011 has failed to deliver on its promise. So obviously, the big question is, what is the promise? And I'll take that as a start to, um, to, to think, to try to answer at least, why I thought that promise did not happen, did not materialize. And I think there was an element of um, different promises for different people in the West, from personal experiences dealing with different people, there was always this uh, idea of an Arab Spring. And I think the name itself immediately gave connotations to other springs that happened in other parts of the world. And I think for Europeans, the experience of Eastern and Central Europe was very much in mind. And I remember very well uh, a meeting that happened in 2012, early 2012, I think, at the German embassy in uh, Prague. And there were many uh, activists, leading activists from Tunisia, from Egypt, from Libya at the time. Libya at the time was not as it looked at that today. It was more or less still relatively promising. And the German ambassador started by looking at the, the lovely balcony of the wonderful palace that is the German embassy in Prague and said it was here uh, in 1991 that certain activists escaped and uh, from certain, I don't know who was pursuing them and gave this fiery speech. And today, I don't know, 30 years after, whatever it was, 25 years after, we have other activists and it was so clear in his mind that, in his speech, that the connotations between what happened in Eastern and Central Europe, late 80s, early 90s, is very much happening in the Arab world right now, which I think means democratization as the West understands democratization. I think that was one understanding that not necessarily was how many, many Egyptians saw what happened in 2011. Another, another anecdote may be also of interest. Uh, relatively at the same time, uh, in the Gulf, I was in Abu Dhabi, and there was a small discussion among a number of intellectuals and, and media types. And, and the idea was that 2011, 
uh, uprising or revolution, as it's, it's usually referred to, was the return of Egypt, if you'd like. So it was not here about democratization much. It was not about the, the reforms and the human rights and political rights and what have you. It was more of, oh, Egypt that has been so missing from the Arab world for 20 years or 30 years during the last at least two decades of Mubarak, Mubarak's reign is back more or less this this Arab nationalist idea of Egypt is back. And funny enough, in, in the reception after that, they put Fairuz's song, song uh, Egypt is back and its sun is, uh, is gold. Also, I don't think that was how Egyptians necessarily saw what happened in, in 2011. So uh, in my mind, it was not really about democratization and, and in, in the European sense of democratization or the Western sense of democratization. And I don't think it was a foreign relations um, geostrategic dimension. I think in Egypt, it was predominantly about three things. It was an end to the, I would say, shocking level of, of inequality, social inequality, that was very obvious in Egypt in the last two to three decades. And of course, those of you who know Egypt very well would say, oh, come on, Egypt has always had immense level of social inequality. Uh, yes, but it wasn't so conspicuous. It wasn't, it wasn't in your eyes. For Westerners, it was in their eyes. Actually, the book I'm reading right now, it's shame on me, I should have read many years ago, is lifting the veil, the veil of, of Anthony Sutton. Uh, and Westerners who visited Egypt in 18-something talked about the shocking gaps between the haves and have-nots. But for most, most of the have-nots in Egypt, it wasn't so conspicuous, simply because there weren't, there weren't really the, the media, the level of, of media openness and, and social closeness, if you'd like, that showed the immense gap between the lifestyles of the top 5%, shall we say, 10% perhaps, and the majority. So I think it became not just shocking, but probably annoying to many people. And the second point, I think that there was some sort of agreement in the last 10, 15 years in Egypt that it was getting too much is the blur between power and wealth. Uh, this is a point I return back to, but I think it's also the very first time, arguably since 1952, since Nasser overthrew uh, King Farouk, that there was this almost indistinguishable merge between power and wealth in Egypt during the late 1990s up to 2011. And of course, there was, I would say, almost consensus amongst the rejection of what we what in, in Egypt we refer to as Mashru'a Tawrith, the inheritance project from Mubarak Senior to Mubarak Junior, uh, Gamal Mubarak. In my mind, and again, I'm, I'm happy to, to debate that because it's just it's a subjective view, but in my mind, this, these three rejections, if you'd like, were really what united the people who came to Tahrir, if you'd like, in, in, in the last week of January 2011, the first week of February. But not much else, in my mind at least. And I think the moment Mubarak fell, more or less, you can argue that these three temporarily were out of the pictures. These three rejections, if you'd like, were to some extent satisfied, to some extent. 
to some extent. And then you had a vacuum, I think. You had, I think many people actually who visited Egypt in, in, in the mid-2011 had this big question mark about, okay, now we have the SCAF, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, but, but what are they really doing? Are they really controlling the country? Are they going to hand over to somebody? What's the future about? But more importantly, I think, there was an opening that has not happened in Egypt intellectually, I think, for probably half a century, that anybody who had a dream, if you'd like, of what Egypt could be like, I think, thought that this is the time. And I think there were three dreams, if you, if, if you allow me, or three narratives, if you want to use a, a better word. One was that of those who were in Tahrir, or at least the ones, of course, that's a generalization. Let's say the activists, as they're usually referred to, the ones who more or less took it seriously. Because many people who are in Tahrir just because there are some passions, but at the end of the day, they're not particularly in, interested that much or invested that much. But I think many activists, some of you probably know them personally, usually the, the young uh, ones who are usually these days or for the past three years have been identified with the liberal current in, in Egypt. Um, they, I think, started to really take the idea of revolution seriously. So I think they, they, they started to think that the first Egyptian Republic has fallen, that the, the, the military establishment, if you'd like, that has ruled Egypt from 1952 is really now out of the picture or should be out of the picture. Um, that this is really democratization, that it is seriously a move towards civil, political, and economic rights in Egypt. And it's not surprising that there are some serious, I would say, think tanks, maybe not at the standards of Oxford, but some serious think tanks, at least by the standards of the Arab world, that started to appear at that time, and almost without exception, all of them are populated by, or led to some extent by young researchers. Many of them studied in the West and, and returned. Probably some of you were some of the colleagues of, of students here who really, as I said, took it seriously. This is a revolution. Of course, this view resonated very nicely with the Western idea of the spring because they were young. These are This is a young generation. These are all of them speak decent English, some of them speak extremely nice English, all of them uh, do not belong to the military or uh, or any of or the public sector in Egypt, all, any of these major institutions that formed Egypt of, of the last half century. So that, that felt that there is, there is uh, an open line of communication, there is resonance, right, between the idea of Arab Spring as the West saw it, and also between this idea of this revolution. As the Arabs say, tajubbu ma qabla, it's like Islam. Everything before it is out of the picture now. This is a new, new page. To some extent as well, personal ambition played, played a role in making this narrative appear. If Mubarak is out, if Gamal Mubarak is out, if the military seems more or less in the back, if we really believe this is a revolution starting everything from scratch, then if you are um, 30 years old, 35 years old, speak good English on CNN every three days, uh, you have uh, leading ambassadors and foreign ministers visiting Egypt wanting to meet with you, then you think, you know what, I can be the next president, you know, I can be... Uh, leader of a party, without mentioning names, but there are probably 30 or 40 figures who were in Tahrir Square, who played some role in 
announcing the, the demonstrations of 25th of January and elsewhere, who more or less started to appear as not necessarily leading figures, but, but as at least prominent figures, people that you would know their names. And you can start to think of them as spokespersons, if you'd like, for this activists group in Egypt. That's also helpful if you want to build a narrative because, you know, the very famous dictum of Kissinger talking about, if I want to speak to Europe, who do I phone or call, whatever it was. The, 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 it's the same thing. Now you have somebody to call if you are in, in Berlin or New York. or You know that this is not a leader, but you know that there are now 10, 20, 30, 40 people that it's not just vague youth generation. No, there are people that you can talk to, people that you can invite. That also makes the narrative clear. The small problem happened when people went to elections, whether it was a referendum on a constitution as it happened in March 2011 or uh, parliamentary elections as it happened in December 2011, January 2012, or later on there was something municipality I forgot and then of course the presidential election in mid-2012. Consistently, consistently, that narrative failed. The numbers were dismal. In the parliamentary elections of December 2011, January 2012, all the liberal parties together, including Al-Waft, which is arguably the most important liberal party in the Arab world, not just in Egypt, got, what, I think less than 15%, the whole thing, or maybe less than 17%, the whole thing. The young generation, those, those leading activists, without again mentioning names and without mentioning parties, got less than six, I think, percent of the parliament. So it's a lovely narrative, full of hope, resonated very nicely with the ideas that Europe and the West, though I would say more Europe than the US, more or less so in this spring, but it seemed that it has really tiny constituency. There was another narrative, of course, that appeared, which is the Islamist narrative. And I know this word is, is, is super vague and super, and I know Eugene is looking at me like, Tarek, what's Islamist here? It's like, Tss. but le let's, let's, I'm not an academic. I, I, I don't, I'm just an observer. So I'll, I'll just take this loose definition and let's, let's run with it slightly. And of course, at the heart of that is the Muslim Brotherhood and the big Salafist groups. But I think it's wider than that. I think... It's even people who might not necessarily identify with the Muslim Brotherhood or with the Salafist party, but who believe that Egypt is, is Dawla Islamiyya, is an Islamic country, who really the, the mosque is, is the center of their identity and social life. So I think it's a bigger thing than these groups. I think for the Islamists, number one, they never took the activists seriously, I think. I know, not I think. They never really, this whole narrative I, I refer to for them was they would smile nicely about it. They, they would say, oh, of course, we'd lovely to work with them. And yes, of course, young generation, wonderful people. And they never really took them seriously. And they knew for a fact that they can crush them in elections, as they did. They also knew that they don't have any resources, which is also true, financial resources especially. For them, I think, uh, for the brotherhood I know, 2011 for them, and the vacuum that happened initially was a weakening of the old enemy. Not, 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 not just the army, but basically the old, the old structure of the old republic. And therefore, I can now negotiate with them and more or less have my terms on the table. And at one point in time, 
Certainly, there are many people inside, especially the Brotherhood, who thought it's not just negotiating with a weakened opponent, that I can use many of the forces in the country to really get the old opponent out, or at least put them on the back feet for some time. And therefore, it is my time now. And those of you who talked to some of the Islamist groups in Egypt in late 2011, especially in 2012, certainly, especially the leadership of the Brotherhood, they they started talking about historical dimensions. It it was really interesting that you speak to them. And many, many times it started to look as if you are reading a book by Eugene, actually, more or less, something about in the last hundred years. And, uh, well, look at at Muhammad Ali's project. And it started more or less to, to, to look what? What are you talking about? There was this idea of they started to think, this is our time. This is really the end of, I heard it probably with, from four or five leading figures, not just in the Brotherhood, but mainly in the Brotherhood, saying the liberal experiment has failed. Secularism has failed. Arab nationalism has failed. And they would draw examples between Muhammad Ali and Gamal Abdel Nasser and, and Burqib, Burqiba and... And for them, it's our time now. So I think there was an evolution into the Islamist narrative, which is interesting, but I think I'm not going to go into it because it's going to take lots of time. But what I'm trying to say is that many Islamists, and certainly within the Brotherhood, saw it as our time now. Of course, they not only saw it this way, but they had the resources. Not just the Muslim Brotherhood, but also some Salafist parties for many reasons, had resources inside the country, financial resources inside the country, and they are legitimate, by the way. It's not, I'm not drawing attention to something that could be illegitimate. These are legitimate. They had very thriving businesses for so many times, not owned by a certain group, by individuals, but who are extremely close, if not inside the group. So it had financial resources. It also had external financial resources, that's especially the Brotherhood, and again, nothing, nothing wrong with that. They had businesses thriving in different parts of, of the world, including in this country. And there was, of course, some financial resources coming from some countries that thought they can exert influence through uh, some Islamists. And Qatar, of course, was a major player. Why I'm saying that, unlike the, 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 the activists, they did have money. Now, having here six bullet points, I can't read. I think the, the summary of these of these six bullet points is that they won elections consistently. They took the prize. I I saw actually Mohammed Morsi when he was entering the, the palace, and so just joy. There was an element of uh, euphoria. Yeah, this is this is it. You know, this is this is it. I think he probably was looking at. Uh, at himself as really the culmination of a, of a century dream, more or less. But because they didn't take, I think, the activists seriously, I would say it was not just that there were some elements in their, in their manner, in the way, in their modus operandi, if you like, in the way they ruled. It was not just that they were quite exclusive, uh, not just that some things really were not particularly uh, loved by loads of Egyptians, such as the constitution they put forward in 2012. Uh, Not just that Mohamed Morsi himself was not the real leader that the Brotherhood wanted. As a president, it was Khairat al-Shatr, another person, another leader. But when that person was disqualified, they put another person. And that, I think, left some sort of a sour feeling in, in the throats and tongues of many Egyptians who thought 
Is Egypt that you just put somebody, even if it's not really your top priority as a president, just because you won the presidency? That also, but it wasn't all of that. I think there was an, a dimension that antagonized many in the Egyptian middle class, and I would say even beyond Egypt, which was because of this euphoria, because of this historical perspective. I would argue, and I know it's subjective, and I, I, I can understand that people say, oh, not really, but in my mind, and again, from loads of interactions with, with the Islamist trend, and especially with the Brotherhood here, they really ignored the idea of Egyptianness, if you'd like. They ignored the history of 150 years of a very interesting, I would say, rich identity, that even Islam in Egypt had, had a different feature than Islam in different parts of the Arab world. And of course, they ignored the fact that there's a very important minority in Egypt, the Christian minority, that felt really antagonized and, and sometimes fearful. Um, and I think this ignoring of Egyptianness, in my mind, was a cardinal sin for the brotherhood in, in power. And I would say also was a sign of, of incompetence, of political incompetence, in my mind. But then there was another narrative, of course, which was that of the state itself. And when I say the state, I, I said I had a, something like that at the American University in Cairo, and the first question after I finished was, what do you mean by the state? He was talking about the military, right? And I said the military is part of it, but it's, it's much beyond the military. It includes the, the Egyptian public sector, by the way, which is really powerful. It includes the judiciary or parts of the judiciary. It includes, of course, the military. But it also in includes a generation in Egypt which was formed by the experience of Gamal Abdel Nasser, and, and even Sadat to some extent, and I would say even the first 10 years of Mubarak, a generation that felt that there is something called the Egyptian state that it is so powerful, that it is the, 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 the father that we all are under its umbrella, that we even if we don't like Mubarak, there's something beyond that. And remember, Egypt went for about 40 years of consistent wars in which there's this idea of, of Egyptian nationality. Egypt probably is the country with the largest production per capita of, of nationalistic, so nationalistic songs, for example. <laughs> it's probably the, the only country in the world, I'm not joking, probably that the most successful TV series for 30 years were those of an Egyptianized James Bond, uh, Rafat al-Haggan, for those who, who Egyptians who... I, I doubt, for example, Archer's here or whatever, the uh, Coronation Street or, or... The Egyptian version of that, versions of that, has incredible sense of, um, of, of building momentum for the idea of Egypt, for... So what I'm trying to define by the state here is not just the military. There is a huge social momentum in Egypt, at a certain generation at least, those who are over probably 50 years old, and many institutions behind it, that did not equate Mubarak with the Egyptian state. And I think this is, this is a crucial point. The three objectives that I listed initially, the, the blur between power and wealth, the massive level of inequality, and of course, inheriting the presidency from Mubarak to his son, many inside that Egyptian state, including the military, were very happy, actually, to see them out of the picture. But what was more interesting, I think, in, in that 
narrative is that they realized that the slogan of the uprising, Shab Yurid Sukut al-Nizam, people wants the the fall of the regime, was mis was inaccurate, because they realized that it's not that the people want the fall of the regime as much as the people want a fall of Mubarak, the fall of social inequality, the fall of the inheritance project, and let's return to the Egypt we love and know, which was, yes, so what if the military have a, a very strong position in the country? Okay, so what if if we're not if we really have massive level of, of concentration of power at the presidency, where you have a military man? So what with that? So what if you have a highly nationalistic rhetoric? So what with that? So what if we insist on Egyptianness the way we know it, and even if it excludes others? So what? So somehow you had loads of Egyptians, including until today, who were happy to return, if you'd like, to 1980s, more or less. But let's learn, if you'd like, from our experiences. So more or less our economic strategy becomes smarter, if you'd like. Our, uh, our social injustices, let's not repeat them, if you'd like. And I think this was a fundamental point that the state realized that 2011 was not necessarily the fall of the regime, does not necessarily the end of the first Egyptian republic, does not necessarily means that all what came before is completely out of the picture, that it needs a reform, that it needs to get rid of the, of the ills, if you'd like, that has inflicted the first Egyptian republic in the last 20 years. And if Mubarak went off-road, okay, he's out. If the project of inheriting to Gamal Mubarak, which they hated, is out, then great. If we have played it wrong with the economy, of course, because we were out, they had these business people surrounding him. So fine, we'll get those out. Let's reform the project. Another bullet points that I can't read. In my mind, and again, this, this is sub sub subjective, and I'm more than happy to have a discussion with that. And I know that many Egyptians, because I, as I said, I had this discussion with few few, few Egyptians before in different contexts. And I got many who disagreed with me, but in my mind, the fundamental reason that 2011 did not really deliver on its promise is that one, the promise was different for different people, they define it in very different ways, but that a huge block in Egypt, not demographically the largest, and I'll come to that point, not demographically the largest, but economically the, pa the most powerful. It is the upper middle class. It is the generation between 50 to 70. It is the generation that leads most of the public and private sector. It is the generation that controls almost all of the public institutions. It is the generation that controls all of the pillars of the state, including the military, of course. Within that generation, within this huge power segment in Egypt, there was different expectation of 2011. And that expectation resonated very nicely with the expectation or the narrative of the state. And I think that led, if you'd like, to a situation whereby the military can come back, the military can put forward its own candidate, who is very extremely popular within that huge power group, if you'd like. I can stop here and say, fine, end of it, I'm happy to have questions, but I, and I know that uh, in the in the program of your series, you have people who will talk about uh, Egypt ceases Egypt in the next few 
weeks. But I would like to leave you with one thought. I'll have I'll be slightly, if you don't mind, for five ten minutes, uh, looking slightly forward, because I think it's it's really interesting to say. So, so what? So what after that? Right. So what? And I think the three narratives that I ha- identified, I think, are are still in play. So clearly, the narrative of the state has won at this stage. Obviously, we have a president who belongs to the first Egyptian republic. We have effectively the same power structure that we had in the 70s and 80s, effectively, more or less, uh, coming back. And you have the idea of, which is publicly presented in Egypt, let's go back to to the powerful Egypt. Let's go back to the, the Egypt that we all knew before the corruption that happened in the last 20 years. Let's go back to a, a huge Egyptian role in the Middle East. And it's always, let's go back, by the way. It, it's extremely interesting to see in the Egyptian narrative that there's always now comparisons to 1960s Nasser. There's always comparisons to the huge power of the Egyptian institutions in the 60s and 70s. So again, let's get rid of the ills of the last 25 years and go back. The problem with that, in my mind, is that it has no reforms. So in my mind, it is going back to the same mindset that has been in Egypt in the 1960s, in the 1970s, in the 1990s, not in the 1990s, not in the 2000s, because the regime, Mubarak's regime, has really changed significantly, I would say, from the mid-90s to 2010. The idea of let's go back goes back to a certain type of Egypt that, yes, is extremely popular amongst a certain group, but it does not entail many reforms. Now, you find lots of people saying that's not true because there are many reforms now being taken, for example, in the economy. I agree. But the mindset of let's dilute the power structure in Egypt is not there. The mindset of let's really have serious checks and balances is not particularly there. The mindset of the idea of patriarchal power in Egypt is not necessarily, remains very much strong. So the idea that it lacks reforms, to my mind, means that I don't think that the power structure has learned, if you'd like, the lesson of 2011. We are trying, or they are trying, to get rid of the ills that have inflicted the structure of the past 20 years. But that does not necessarily mean that what was before it was on a fantastic, wonderful path. There was a reason why it led to a concentration of power that led to what we have seen in the last 20 years. If you return the clock to 1980, if you'd like, and you have the same mindset, it does not necessarily mean that you'll end up in a much better path. And the other point, I'm not sure that they are really widening their constituency. So I, in my mind, as I said, they have a certain group that is extremely supportive of that structure. But the real demographics of Egypt are different today. As we speak, Egypt is roughly 90 million people, of which 45 or 50 million are under 30, 35 years old. Within those, two-thirds are less than 25 years old. That's a weak constituency. Financially, they're very weak. They don't have jobs, most of them. Most of them are in universities right now, or maybe even high schools. So the most people that you see in demonstrations in Tahrir Square or elsewhere have no income, simply. They are economically not powerful. They don't have control over the media. They're not in any institution. All of these are in a different generation. Uh, 
But if you are the power structure and you have that, you have the group that controls everything, they love you, they support you, wonderful. But if one, you are not reforming mentally, not economically, and two, the widest group in the country you are not really getting into, then I think you have a problem. Now, you can tell me, how do you know that they're not widening their constituency? I don't have a scientific measure to say that. I'm in Egypt twice, uh, twice, uh, two weeks every, every month, so I talk to lots of people. But there is one data point that was extremely interesting, which was the presidential and presidential election of May 2014 and the, parliament and the referendum on the constitution in January 2014. Both of them, again, we don't have numbers, but I think anybody on the ground has noticed that the youth c presence in these was extremely limited, really, really small. The presence of the youth in the polling stations in January 2014 and May 2014, I would say was conspicuously low. Somebody say no, I, that's my view at least. <laughs> I think that the youth's presence was extremely low. And to my mind, with loads of people I talk to, I think there is a huge disillusionment within young Egyptians today of the return, if you'd like, of the old power structure, and more importantly, of the old mindset. The second narrative, which is the Islamists, I'm not going to go into because obviously this is a huge story. But in my mind, they're out of the picture for probably a number of years, not necessarily 10 years. But I think right now there is real revisions within not just the Muslim Brotherhood, but within different Islamist groups about we had the prize and we lost a huge support in such a small period of time. Yes, we retain a huge constituency, but I think there's lots of, of thinking going on in that Islamist trend right now. So I'm not going to go into that. But the final point, which is to what's happening to the, the other narrative, the one I started with, the activists, the, the ones who led to some extent the presence that created January 2011. Personally, I think the idea of a revolution that takes everything before it, I think all of them by now, and more importantly, those who are not necessarily leaders uh, in the last two, three years, but more or less are starting to play clear roles, I think realized that this idea is very romantic and it's not real, that there are huge constituencies in Egypt that do not necessarily want the fall of the regime, not necessarily wants a break with what has been before. So in other words, you need to have some sort of continuity, some sort of evolution, really. So I think that adds a lot of maturity. Two, I think the idea of putting forward a highly uh, ambitious, westernized, at least influenced democratization process, as was said in the first and second and third quarters of 2011 also by now is out of the picture. I think people are now starting to think, right, what kind of, of small gains we can take here and there and whether there's some sort of incremental process over the next two or three years. And finally, I think the idea of the generation that came before us has failed, which was so powerful in 2011 and 2012. All of the young activists I talked to, including in the making of the modern Arab world, actually, which is on record, you'd, you'd find most of them at least saying, 
it's a generational change. And more or less, so everybody more than about 50 is out of the picture. Now we are taking over. Clearly not, because this is not happening. So I think also this idea is to some extent out of the picture. And for me, that narrative, what's happening within those young guys, is the most interesting. Because if you find them playing in that incremental game, if you'd like, are they going at one point in time gain important elements within the Egyptian state that allows them to gradually take over? Will the state allow them? Will the state in five years, for example, realize that it's impossible demographically to oppose that group? Are we going to see actually at one point in time a clash as we are to some extent seeing in, in the last two years between the regime and those activist groups that could lead to another wave of demonstrations? Or are we going to see in this time much more intelligent game of co-opting, which did not happen before 2011, and therefore you really see the change not seeping in and gradually happening, but more is happening quickly at the top? So many questions, I think. But out of the three narratives, I think the one of the state itself, to me, is not particularly interesting, because I think it's backward-looking, really. The one of the Islamists, it's incredibly rich and, and, and uh, I think will, will be a dramatic story in the next 10 years in the Arab world, but probably it's too complicated to go into. And I think it's, it's still also too premature to discuss because I think even w inside these groups, there are different views on, on where they are going. But what's happening within, I don't want to say the activists because it's, it's, it's very vague, but the liberal young who played a very leading role in, in 2011, and we are seeing them, again, in certain think tanks, and we are seeing them a little bit, in some, little bit, in some professional syndicates. How are they going to interact with the regime, I think, is the most interesting story right now. And to my mind, and it's subjective view, to my mind, they have been sitting on the sofa right now for the past year and a half, since more or less the old power came back. I think they're just watching. As I said, you disagree with me, but I think that they are very disillusioned. They're just sitting and you're like, Pff. it's not surprising, by the way, that there are loads of, of high talent leaving Egypt right now, whether trying to come here or go to Dubai, or they are very disillusioned. But you cannot leave the country and this this sense of disillusionment won't continue there will be an interaction with the state the nature of that interaction of this group i think is one of the most interesting interesting stories um to watch about the future of the country i talked over slightly over than half hour so i hope it was not too long um and I know I raised many questions, that uh, many points that I'm sure loads of people disagree with. So I'll be more than happy to uh, engage in discussion on them. 